You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Um, Howard, welcome to The Big Trade series. It's um, been a while, but um, I'm happy to um, have you finally come on to this uh, podcast. Well, thank you, Peter. It, it has it has been a while, and uh, you know it's, it's funny that uh, no matter what you do in life, the markets are going to be here tomorrow. <laughs> uh, both the markets and you will be here tomorrow, I guess. Well, the markets will be here. Uh, you know, we're here before I got here, and they're going to be here after I'm gone. So uh, I, I, I can't take particular credit for continuity in that regard. <laughs> Howard, you also hold a, a unique distinction of um, also writing one of the credits at the back of my book. Um, I did. Yes, yeah. Um, for your information, by the way, the book has just been released officially throughout um, Vietnam, and it's um, guarding quite a bit of interest, actually. Uh, people are yeah. discussing about it from the perspective of, like, you know, the fact that people of um, Vietnamese descent are actually writing books internationally and then kind of, like, coming back, uh, quote-unquote, home, I guess, is of um, particular interest to people here. That's uh, that's that's really uh, that's really good to hear. I know you put a lot of uh, time and a lot of uh, effort uh, into that, and it's a uh, you know it's a line uh, that I always uh, remember you saying to me that you know after uh, you know after the experience uh, that uh, that I had had uh, putting single stock uh, futures uh, you know together at uh, Nasdaq uh, Life Fund Markets and uh, doing all of the uh, regulatory and compliance work and listing requirements. And when you were uh, looking at uh, putting uh, together uh, the uh, the index uh, for uh, for Vietnam, I said to you, I said, Peter, you don't want to get involved in index management. You said, Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're the first person who has ever said that because most most people, after one go around uh, with uh, the building and maintaining of a stock index uh, products, are generally happy uh, to pay somebody else uh, to do it. And I guess that I would be on the happy to pay and you would be on the happy to collect side of that, <laughs> of that um, equation there. But it's, 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 always, it's always difficult. It's one of the things that I've uh, pointed out uh, is that one of the differences between stocks and commodities is stocks come and go. They get merged out of existence. Uh, they, they go bankrupt. Corn can never go bankrupt. It's always, it's always going to be here. And, and it's essentially, you know, you can increase the yield and maybe, you know, some of the protein content and disease resistance, but it's really, you know, a pretty constant product, whereas companies change uh, every day and every year, markets change, indexes uh, change, the composition uh, changes. So you're always dealing with uh, something that's completely different. And I've always uh, had that as a criticism of the technical analysis of stocks as opposed to the technical uh, analysis of commodities or currencies or interest rate products. Right, right. But by the way, for anyone um, that doesn't know what Howard is referring to in terms of the index, um, I just uh, recently, I, sh I should fill you in on this as well. I guess a lot of people can hear, hear this as well, is that we just um, uh, recently uh, finalized our agreements uh, with Standard & Poor's Dow Jones to construct um, a Vietnam Equal Weight Index. Um, it's going to be officially released early 
next month, and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it. Um, having spent some time here analyzing the markets here in Vietnam, basically there are certain factors like uh, foreign ownership restrictions. There are um, issues in regards to liquidity and um, the magnitude that state-owned enterprises have in terms of their float within the actual market um, uh, weight of the actual index itself. I, I feel as if the construction of the index that we're making mitigates a lot of that because it is equal weight, so it doesn't place that much emphasis on weighting and too much emphasis on one particular stock, first and foremost. Secondly, it kind of addresses some of the issues in regards to um, state-owned enterprises and the fact that it's effectively agnostic to that um, situation. So um, it's, it's an interesting project, and it will be actually one of the first uh, indexes uh, for Vietnam. But obviously, as you indicated, this is not an easy feat to do. We need to do that in collaboration with uh, a much bigger entity like Standard Poor's. And I guess for anyone that's listening, we can discuss much more about that in the upcoming weeks. But um, I guess today it's more about having a conversation with you. You're one of these really interesting people that I've... Um... How long have we known each other for, by the way? It's probably going to be a longer than either one of us uh, remembers, but it, it, it could be uh, eight could years now. Eight, ten years. Oh yeah. my gosh! Wow, eight, ten years, and throughout the yeah. whole period of time, you have been, um, a, 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 you know, an epic or prolific writer about equities and markets overall. Um, I, I almost don't know where to start. Basically, maybe. Maybe can we dabble in on um, negative rates? But before we even do all of that, perhaps you can introduce yourself to the audience, and then we can dabble into negative rates. Well, I, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to take up uh, all the time of their. Uh, I'm an economist who uh, writes on uh, on financial markets and pretty much on uh, on uh, all aspects of uh, financial markets. Uh, I, so I sort of got into this. Uh, uh, by the uh, interesting uh, way of uh, being an economist at an oil company, uh, who then had uh, to uh, model the effects of natural gas decontrol back in the late 1970s. So you know that I, you know, that I go back a little bit of a different, uh, you know, a, a long ways, and then uh, that uh, got me into uh, the uh, trading of uh, energy uh, commodities and the building the models up for those. And I had to, in essence, unlearn a lot of textbook uh, finance and from energy uh, uh, commodities i moved in the, uh, to the uh, financials and to the currencies and the equities i'd always been a uh, a currency uh, analyst uh, because my uh, education's international economics and that was in the 70s when the uh, modern uh, system of uh, uh, I'll, I'll call it the floating exchange rates uh, was uh, was was born mm. So I've uh, been doing uh, this uh, throughout uh, all aspects of, of uh, you know, being a, uh, a professor, a director of research, uh, and as uh, Peter mentioned, uh, an author. And I, and I like to take a very uh, integrated approach and a little bit of a longer uh, term of view. Is, uh, is, uh, you know, Peter knows, and actually it's a frustration sometimes of a lot of the people I write for, uh, I'm not the guy you want to go to to say, you know, well, you know, what's the hot stock for tomorrow? Uh, I don't. I, I don't particularly uh, think in those terms. But what I want to try to do 
is sort of integrate uh, the uh, 30,000 foot uh, uh, overview. And this is a really interesting time in uh, market uh, history uh, to do this. Uh, this whole uh, concept that we've uh, seen over the last uh, you know year and a half of uh, negative interest rates, I can tell you that it, uh, in around 2000 or so, that I was uh, you know teaching my interest rate class, and I mentioned in passing uh, that interest rates could go negative, and I and I got like you know just sort of this anguished cry. Uh, from uh, you know students, how can interest rates go negative? And I said, well, they went negative in the U.S. Mm -hmm. in 1937 when the Treasury bill prices went to a premium. Uh, the Swiss put a, a penalty on foreign inflows in uh, uh, 1979. That was a negative rate, but never really, uh, you know, uh, we've never really tried this uh, as a broader policy. Right. Now, let's take a, st a step back of this long-term view and look at U.S. long-term interest rates. And I'm going to use a, a series that our, our good friends at the Federal Reserve uh, put out and they have on their website that they call the uh, constant maturity 10-year note rate. You know, remember, you buy a bond, it's 10 years today. Well, you know, tomorrow it's nine years and 364 days. So they're always adjusting uh, for a, a constant 10-year uh, maturity there. And if you uh, plot this uh, on, on a logarithmic scale, you know, so equal, uh, you know, equal distances, equal percentage moves, you find that we've uh, been going in a long-term downtrend, a series of lower highs, all the way back to September of 1981. Mm -hmm. And I should uh, interrupt myself here. Uh, I remember uh, having, uh, you know, a, a lunch in the company cafeteria at the time I was working in the economics department of, a, of an oil company. And uh, one of the, uh, you know, fellows said, well, have you bought your uh, utility stocks yet? Meaning that, uh, you know, you think this is a, a you know, a, you know, good time to, you know, go along and interest rates. And, and I chuckled, I said, how many, how many times are we going to have to try, you know, that trade? Mm -hmm. uh, and at the time, 10-year uh, rates were around uh, 16% in the U.S. And, of course, short-term rates were, were higher than that. But we've been in this long-term downtrend now for 35 years. Nothing new. Now, if you've taken uh, the similar chart for the one-year constant maturity, you find that it's also been, not only in this downtrend, but every time markets hit a hiccup, it dropped lower, making the yield curve steeper. So you see a, 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 a one steepening in the early 1990s when uh, Alan Greenspan was Fed chair, uh, and this was in response uh, to the mild recession of the early uh, 1990s following the uh, first uh, Persian Gulf War. You see another one uh, after the dot-com bust that's a little bit deeper. And then you see this gigantic drop in the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So every time we ran into trouble, not only were long-term interest rates declining, but they kept using monetary policy to drive short-term rates increasingly lower, almost to zero in the U.S. We, we haven't gone negative here yet, right. uh, and making the yield curve steeper. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this is interesting, because either the next time we're going to have to start printing money, quantitative easing, which we did, or we're going to have to go negative, which we haven't yet, but it's, uh, it's uh, clearly gone around the world. What is really going on here? And what is really going on here is, is it's very fundamental. 
what the nature of interest rates are. That is, uh, you're, you're trying to uh, equilibrate, uh, you know, make, make a difference between current and future consumption. So if I lower interest rates, I'm rewarding current consumption. I'm making it easier to go out and borrow and, uh, and buy now. And then I'm uh, making future uh, uh, consumption less. I'm, I'm effectively I'm kicking the can down the road by pulling consumption forward. I'm also lowering investment because everybody who is now consuming isn't saving and investing. Okay. And everybody who's potentially an investor thinks that their investment's going to have to pay off in a higher uh, future interest rate environment. So we wonder why we have this sort of low investment, low productivity growth, low, uh, you know, uh, low economic growth environment, and that's because we keep on borrowing from the future to finance ourselves in the present. Now let's let, let's let's ask ourselves another question. Okay, who's who's paying for this? Well, it's been pointed out in the United States uh, for sure, and, uh, and, and uh, to a lesser extent um, in uh, some of the European countries, that the real beneficiaries of easy money have been asset holders. It pushes the price of financial assets, stocks, corporate bonds, real estate higher. Mm -hmm. uh, and that doesn't do you much good if you're not an asset holder. Mm -hmm. So, what, what, uh, so the, the real gains from you know, the Federal Reserve's policies have been to, you know, we, we, we dubbed them now the 1%, and clearly we have a populist pushback in the United States. All you have to do is look at our, look at our politics, even though you really can't look for very long without, the, you know, starting to laugh uh, or cry, depending on which, you know, which, you know, you know, which point of view you take. We've been, um, we've been rewarding asset holders, and we've been uh, punishing uh, workers, people who, uh, who don't have a lot of financial assets by, you know, making their consumption cheaper, but at the, at the cost of uh, they don't get any uh, increase in real wages. Right. Now, what do negative interest rates do is they effectively are a tax now on savings. Uh, if I am an investor and a saver, I uh, have to face... Uh, this uh, cost in putting money in the bank. Uh, I have to overpay for a corporate bond. I just uh, got done there writing a client piece you know, yesterday where I said, you know what? Our stocks are uh, overvalued. No, they're actually undervalued relative to overvalued corporate bonds. Mm -hmm. So I, if it yields more than zero, it's overpriced. So if I don't have any money, Right now, negative rates are doing me no good because uh, they, they don't push up the price of the financial assets I don't have. And so what if I, if I, if I can borrow for less if I, don't, if I really don't have you know, the, you know, the credit to borrow more? Uh, and if I'm uh, a saver and investor, I uh, am either going to be getting this implicit tax from negative rates or near zero rates on, on savings, plus every time I go out and buy something that's a risky financial asset, it's horribly overpriced. So longer term, what we've done is we finance our current consumption, made ourselves feel like you know everything's okay, 
at the, uh, the, the penalty of underinvesting in tomorrow, impoverishing first our non-investing class, and now we're coming to get the investing class. Mm-hmm. So rather than take the pain of you know, a recession when uh, things turn lower, each time our response was, well, we can fix this recession by lowering short-term interest rates. And every time we did it, we kicked the can down the road. And, and, and at some point, we're going to have to pay in the form of either longer-term poverty or uh, the destruction of uh, productive uh, you know, assets. Basically, uh, it's a fancy way of saying that we're going to have to blow the world up and start over again. And, and, and nobody really wants to do that, which is why we keep on the, you know, postponing it. So this is really a terrible time to be an investor, and it's an even worse time to not have the money to be an investor. And this probably explains why there's such a great level of unhappiness, not only in the U.S., but certainly in Western Europe. I mean, all you have to do right now is look at the refugee crisis in Western Europe. Uh, and, and, And you're even unhappier where the refugees are coming from because... Um, I mean, I don't, I don't have to tell you, Peter, about, you know, the refugee experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to be one. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, a, uh, it, it, it's, it's really a situation where we, we, try to, we try to cheat the gods as it was and pretend that we could get through life without any pain and all we're doing is storing this up for our comeuppance later. So right. what do you do? What do you do yeah. right now tomorrow? Well... The simple fact of the matter is if you, if you have investable funds, you have no alternatives. The price of safety has gone you know, to ridiculous levels. You have to pay to be safe. So what you really are reduced now is to going out and buying the riskiest assets you can think of. Um, you, you, you buy the, uh, you know, you buy, well, frankly, you buy the frontier markets, you know, which is not intended to be a plug for the Vietnam market, but it's simply a statement. You buy the frontier markets, you buy, uh, you know, you buy lower, uh, you know, uh, credit bonds, you bet on the energy sector coming back, you bet on the basic material sector coming back, you bet on anything that has this embedded call option where you can convince yourself that if you keep walking in the casino enough and throwing the dice enough, that this call option embedded in the stocks or in the uh, uh, in, or in the, uh, the high yield bonds or in the uh, convertible bonds is going to pay off. Right, right. So we're not investors anymore. We're, we're basically wishful thinkers. How That's the best place to be. Yeah. The thanks. Thanks. How does this um, coincide with this growing trend of global debt? Now, if there's one consistent trend that I've seen, is that just the accumulation of debt while all of this is happening has been compounding exponentially. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, having, gov- having governments figure out that they can get paid for borrowing money, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, may, you may want to pardon uh, the analogy, but uh, I've, I've joked it's like having New Yorkers find out that cockroaches can spin silk. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, the idea that you can borrow money and get paid to borrow, 
uh, means that you're going to borrow more. And it also means that that money is going to go uh, into uh, relatively non-productive transfer payments, a way of buy, buying social peace. Uh, it also means that we, we you know, maintain a very disinflationary environment because the more indebted people are, uh, the less they can you know, take on the uh, creation of new credit for productive investment. So uh, this debt overhang means that what we're going to have is a slow growth environment for the foreseeable future. I mean, how do you how do you break that cycle? You, do you stop borrowing and you, you shut off the flow of transfer assets? Not likely, because what you'll do is you're going to break the social compact. It's becoming a, it's come under a lot of stress in Western Europe. It's come under a lot of stress right now in the uh, in the U.S. I think the only reason it hasn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, broken completely in Japan is that the people who are most dependent on the social welfare in Japan are, are all 75 years old. And frankly, they're not going to get out in the street. They can't. Right. Um, you have uh, an emerging situation in China with a debt overhang there that is going to be uh, uh, very disinflationary for a long time to come. Because they're, they're not going to acknowledge their debt problems. They're going to try to pretend that they don't exist. And if, you, if we've learned anything over the last year and a half about the ability of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the ruling party in China to manage economic affairs is that they pretend that they do a better job than they actually do. They have not... They have not done a good job, but it's, you can't tell me right now where they want the yuan to go. Right. Uh, I mean, everybody agrees the yuan's overvalued, and they refuse to let it uh, decline because uh, what they're afraid of uh, the capital outflow and what that will uh, what that will mean uh, to it uh, to the Chinese economic growth. If the yuan does decline, the two times we've seen this in last year in August of 15 and then in January of uh, this year, uh, you had a major global financial shock. So everybody wants to pretend that the yuan's pretty much safe where it is, and then every now and then they, 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 they push it higher just to make sure that if anybody's betting against it, they're, they're going you know, to have some pain and suffering. So you're going to have uh, this, this demand for transfer payments, this demand for... Uh, Putting the for more debt on public uh, on public balance uh, sheets that ultimately is going to, to involve the continued expansion of um, uh, central bank balance sheets because they're the only ones who are going to be able to uh, you know to you know or willing uh, you know to uh, uh, to finance this. So you're going to keep interest rates lower for longer. You're going to perpetuate this hidden tax on savers and investors by either direct confiscation with negative interest rates or lower future returns because what you're buying now is overpriced. And if you are uh, not a saver and investor, if you're a consumer, if you're in debt, if you're you know, a net debtor, and most most people are, uh, that's just the way, you know, that's just the way life is, uh, then you're, you're just going to be hanging on and hopefully yeah, you can maintain some level of consumption and be convinced that you're happy. Right now, people are not doing a good job of convincing themselves that they're happy. 
and they're wondering who did this to them, and that's why we have the rise of these populist uh, uh, movements right. in the U.S. and Europe. Well, Howard, I like to convince I'm happy by having this conversation with you, and, and I think I think um, what we should do is um, typically because you know I try to give like a Vietnam perspective. I don't know if you've had any chance to look at Vietnam recently, or or thought about it at all, or thought about TPP overall. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that you'd like to share, and that we could end it around there. Well, I'll tell you what. For, for me, for me, free trade. Is, is practically a religion. You know, as I mentioned, uh, I'm an international economist by training. Right. And in, in the classical liberal sense, uh, I believe in open markets and free trade and, you know, the, you know, co, you know, co, you know, comparative uh, advantage and uh, exports. So I'm a free trader, lock, stock, and barrel. And there's going to we obviously have a lot of pushback on uh, on that. I think ultimately what happens whenever a importer puts up trade barriers that redounds to the benefit of the exporter because the exporter traditionally says, okay, you're restricting what I can um, uh, send you. So instead of sending you the cheap stuff, I'm going to send you the higher value-added stuff. If you look at the Japan's uh, history in the 50s and 60s and then going into the early 70s, when we started to put uh, import restrictions on Japanese goods and quotas on Japanese goods, they increased the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, you know, the quality and the sophistication of their export mix. When I was a small child in the 50s, uh, I'm, I'm 61 now, right now. So when I was a small child in the 50s, made in Japan meant cheap, shoddy, low quality. Right. By the 1970s, made in Japan meant well designed, well built, well engineered, and it still does. Mm. So uh, trade protectionism, oddly, works in favor of the exporter because they have to shift their competition to the higher value-added mix. So everybody starts out making textiles and, and light manufacturers and the like, and then they have to move up the curve. So oddly enough, even though protectionism in the U.S. is a negative initially, over the long term it's a positive for an exporter. Interesting. Well, Howard, let's leave it at there, and then maybe we can try to resume this conversation in the not-too-distant future. Okay. Thanks for coming on the Big Trade Series, Howard. Well, thank you, Peter. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 